0: You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brittany, and if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, please stick around before you go out the door so I can. And if you're part of the Vineyard family, it's good to see you this morning. If you're online, hey there. It always feels weird talking to a screen, but it probably feels just as weird watching on the other side. But we've got some devoted folks like Rob that are online, so it's good to... Be with you virtually, because that's sometimes the best that we can do. Uh, We are a year and a half into the Bible. If you're new with us, we are going through the entire thing, start to finish, because there's a lot in there, and it's good stuff. And if we're honest, we don't always hit all of those passages when we're working through it in church. Sometimes we only hit the highlights, and so we're going through all of the valleys or the not-so-high lights as well. And I'm excited because we are about to jump into wisdom literature. So we've been working, we're in the third scroll of the Old Testament, and if you don't know what wisdom literature is, I'm going to get there in just a moment. But suffice it to, stay, to say, we are going to hit some really fun topics over the next month. We're going to talk about suffering today. Anybody out there, like, really excited to suffering? Yeah? We're going to talk about sex at the end of June. Is anybody excited about that? Yeah? No? No takers, Okay. Um, we are going to talk about all of those really kind of confusing passages in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs, because they're a really significant part of the book. They were included for a reason, but for a lot of reasons, we don't always talk about them on Sunday morning, and we should, because the stuff in there is gold. Um, so we're going to jump in today with the book of Job. But every generation... At least I'm convinced of this. I have no scientific backing, so it could just be my opinion. But I'm fairly certain, I'd like to say, that every generation of humanity that has ever lived and ever will live will deal with big questions. And what I mean by that is, why do I exist? What is my purpose? What happens after I die? Why is there suffering? I don't, again, have any scientific proof that every generation has asked these things. But they're so common in everybody that I do know, everyone I've interacted with, that I have a hard time believing that that's not something that humanity will wrestle with, always did, and always will coming forward. And that is the reason that wisdom literature was even created by Israel. It was to wrestle with big questions. So as you're reading through Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Joe, Song of Songs, Joe, Book of Joe. Book of Job, Song of Songs, don't read into that. I'm not adding anything to the, to the Old Testament. Um, at least I didn't call it the Book of Job, the Book of Job. Um, those books were written to wrestle with big questions, which is why most of them contextually don't have like a main character who can be identified as somebody in Israel. They don't necessarily have a storyline that fits into the Israel narc, arc. Wow. Welcome to being a parent of three children who do not sleep through the night. It's just a day. It's fine. This is my life. Um, wisdom literature was written to, to navigate those big questions because everyone is asking them. And so the people of Israel were also asking them and they weren't just asking them to know the answers, but with their ask, they were trying to also determine things like, okay, God, if what is the purpose of life? And then how does that inform us to know what you're like? And then how does that inform us how to live in this world? And, and, and God, even on top of that, what is this world? So as we're working through these books, the questions themselves are the main point in each of these stories. They're the main focal point that the author was trying to unpack because he, was, he or she was trying to help Israel know this is who God is, and this is how you live in the complex world that he has created. Wow. Thank you, Johanna. So that people could navigate these big questions with some semblance of stability or some type of concrete understanding. But as we work through them, we're going to realize that even though these books were written to pursue answers, most of the time they only bring up more questions for us. And that's okay. That's kind of the point. Job in particular was meant to stimulate our hearts and minds. It was meant to be a book that makes you think specifically about God's character and about the existence of suffering in the world. You know, they didn't include it in the Bible as this really neat, tidy answer as much as they included it in the Bible so that you would have to wrestle. So if that's what happens when you read the book of Job and you leave with a lot of questions, it's doing its job. Um, So, haha, Job, doing its job. (laughs) Haha, that was good. That was like a dad joke, Jen. (laughs) Okay, so let's pray and jump into the book of Job. Jesus, thank you that even though I didn't sleep, you did in whatever way that you, God, are rested all the time. And so whatever succinct thoughts I need this morning, Lord, I ask for them. Would you untangle my tongue, Holy Spirit, and just deliver the beauty and the goodness of this book so that we may rest in the beauty and goodness of you, Jesus. I just thank you that you are present and it's all about you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to do two things this morning. I am gonna walk you through the book of Job, but before we get there, I'm also going to teach you how to use a QR code in case that's something you do not know how to use. So, you can pull out your cell phones because we are going to start with a survey this morning. You don't have a cell phone, you say? Don't worry, I will come to you and help you. You're gonna open the camera part of your cell phone, the little whatever it is on there that allows you to take pictures. You're gonna point it at the screen, hopefully I'm not in your way, and you're going to you have to zoom zoom way, 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 way in, way in so that it almost takes up the whole thing. And then, in theory, a tiny little link is going to pop up once you've zoomed way, way, way in. When that tiny little link pops up, you're going to click on it. Joe, can you pop the lights off on the stage just for a sec? Mm, Just the headlights. Just the first one. Yep. Try it now. See if it works better now that it's darker. Zoom way, way, way in so that it's almost the whole size of your screen. And you're going to click on it. And it's going to open up a survey. I'll get out of the way. A survey about suffering. All right. One person has it. I'm going to come over to you, Barb, with my phone. You're just going to rank these statements from 0 to 10 from completely disagree, which is 0, to 10, which is I completely agree. If you're having a hard time connecting with the front, the one in the back is a little bit clearer. We're going to give you two minutes to answer these, and then we're going to come back together and take a peek at the results. And we're back. Johanna's going to pull up the live results, which are probably going to be really small, so you may not be able to see them, but based on the questions, we're looking at the concept of suffering. And so for most of you, this is actually really, this means I think we're doing well. Um, agree or disagree, God blesses people who obey him and punishes those who don't. Most of you lean on the side of disagree or you're not entirely sure. Suffering is the result of sin in your life. Again. It lands more in the disagree category. Same with God uses suffering to discipline me and teach me lessons. Out of all the questions, that's the one that people are most like, maybe that could happen. I'm not positive about it. And then the last is the existence of suffering makes it hard for me to trust God. And that's the lowest, which is also, to me, is a really good discipleship indicator in our church. So that's really good. Hold on to all of these. Joe, if you don't mind just popping the light back on. Thank you. Um, Job is a curious book because if you've read any of it, if you've read the beginning, the middle, the end, the whole thing, you would probably come to the conclusion that suffering is the primary topic of Job. Agree to disagree? Agree? Yeah. That's what it looks like from a face value. You're like, Job has a lot of good stuff and then he loses all of it and most of the book is him talking about all the things that he's lost. But in reality, it goes a lot deeper than that. And so in order to understand that, you have to have a really good contextual and literary and historic understanding of the first two chapters of the book because they set up the whole thing. So in the prologue, the first thing that happens is we're introduced to this guy named Job, and this guy loves God. And I don't mean like he shows up to temple on Sunday. He's not even an Israelite. He may have even lived before Israel was even a nation. We don't have any idea where he falls on the timeline. There's a lot of debate over that. But suffice it to say, he loves God so much that he even makes sacrifices for hypothetical sins that his kids may have committed just to make sure that he's always in good alignment with the Lord. Job 1.1 says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And so the author sets up this really beautiful picture of who Job is, of his character, but he also sets up this image that because Job is such a good guy, because he obeys God, listens to him, that God has then given him a really, really good life, right? He's got a a family where all his millions of children, it's not millions, but there's a lot of them, they go to each other's houses every night to have dinner and they don't fight. Like, that's a miracle if if I've ever seen one. He also has a lot of camels and a lot of donkey, and he's, he's got a lot of money. He's really wealthy. He's really comfortable. He's got a really, what we would maybe call a, a good life. He's got a really comfortable life. And the dynamic that the author is trying to get us to see is what was known in Hebrew as the retribution principle. So it was this idea that God will bless people who do good deeds, or he rewards the good deeds, and that bad deeds are then punished. And this was a really common thought process of how God works. And if we're honest, people still treat God like he works like this today. And this is the very idea or notion that the author is about to test in this book. And the person that he uses to initiate this test in our Bibles is called Satan or the Satan, which would be a more appropriate way to translate it. And we move from Job into God's throne room, and God's basically holding a team meeting. All the angels are there, and they're kind of just saying what we're what we're doing. It's, it's sort of like a morning staff meeting, if you will. And the Satan is among them. In Job 1.7 it says, The Lord said to the Satan, From where have you come? And the Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. In your Bible and this Bible even that I use, if you're using the ESV, we would say Satan. That's the way we would use it, even though it's Satan in Hebrew. Um, Satan is usually capitalized, and it's treated like a name we're like oh satan so immediately most of us would read that and say oh the devil just showed up in god's front yard and is like telling him his business because you know why is he even there and the problem with that is that the hebrew word satan is not a name it is a descriptive noun used to describe any person any person humans angels anyone who stands opposed to or is an adversary of someone else it could also be translated as prosecutor or accuser. And this is really important because it's used throughout the Old Testament in reference to a lot of people who are not the devil or God's enemy. It's used to describe Solomon's enemies. It's also used to describe David himself. And it's used to describe an angel who goes before the Lord and accuses Israel's high priest of being in sin. It is inherently not used, or it's not always used to describe the devil or God's enemy. And it's really, really important that we recognize that because if we think that God is sitting here talking to the devil, then this book becomes a battle between good and evil. And it's really confusing because what it looks like is that God just gave the enemy permission to destroy someone's life to prove a point. And if that's true, then it leads us to the theological conclusion that God, A, is the author of both good and evil in our lives and that his character is very fickle, right? He's not trustworthy because sometimes he sends good stuff and sometimes he lets evil happen. And so... What does that mean about God? And that is the conclusion a lot of people will come to, and they kind of close the book of Job here because they're like, that's really upsetting, and I don't know how to handle that with my faith, and they walk away. We have to understand that the book of Job may not be a real-life story, it could very easily be a parable that was included, a divinely inspired parable, absolutely. But there's nothing to say that this actually physically happened to a real person because that's not the point. The satan is never really identified. It could be an angel. It could have been the enemy. It could just be somebody that the writer of Job was using to bring about his actual point, which is the challenge that the Satan brings up to God. That is the focal point of this entire book. His focus, it comes out in Job 1, 9 to 11, where the Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Satan is directly confronting God's practice of obeying people who bless them. He's basically saying, it's really nice for you to reward people who obey you, but how do you know that that doesn't change their motives? How do you know people are actually worshiping you because they love you and not just for all the good stuff they're going to get because they do what you want? That's what he's doing. That's what he's putting. And what that is, is the retribution principle that Israel lives by where they think God rewards good deeds and he punishes bad deeds. And so the Satan is putting this issue, this whole prologue is, is the author setting up a debate to say, is that really how God operates the world? We're going to have a whole story to find out if that's true or not. And so the primary question that comes up in the book of Job as we test out this principle really is a character issue of God. And and what the author is trying to get at is, is God just and wise? Is he just and wise? And if so, has he ordered the world so that good deeds are always rewarded and bad deeds are always punished? And this is a really important thing to navigate through it. It makes sense why God would want this in the Bible, because this is something that people actually wonder. It's a question we still ask in our generation today, let alone all the folks who would have read the Old Testament during their day. And so at the, as we're looking at these broader things, the author is trying to help Israel determine if they can look at the way that the world works. And figure out God's character from that, because that's how a lot of people make assumptions about God. They say, well, this is how this happened, and this is how this happened, so God must be like this. And the author wants to say, is that a valid way to really look at God's character? And so the rest of the book is a series of dialogues between Job and his friends, and then some monologues between Job, one of his friends, and God, that really wrestle with these two basic assumptions about who God is. We'll start with the three friends. We have Eliphaz, the Temnite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And these three friends represent the best of ancient Near East thinking. It'd be like the top philosophers of our day. That's the idea that we get behind these three characters being included. And from their perspective, they uphold the two primary assumptions that God, yes, indeed, he is just and wise. And yes, indeed, he has ordered the world to operate in a retributive way, which means good is rewarded and bad is always punished. And because of that, it leads them to the conclusion that Job has to have sinned, and that is why he is suffering. Their theology doesn't leave space for anything else. If God is just, and he orders the world, so good is rewarded and bad is punished, and Job is experiencing punishment, then he must have done something bad. In Job 4, 7 to 9, Bildad says, Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. Basically, Job, God doesn't give people bad stuff unless they've done bad, which means you've done bad. And they go on so far to assert this, that they give Job lists of things he probably did because they can't figure out why he's suffering. So like, you probably did this or that, or maybe you did this because they have to come up with something. And it reminds us that humans then and now assume that suffering is tied to someone's moral or ethical failure. It's maybe not the assumption you hold, but it is an assumption that some people hold. And what happens when this is our assumption is it makes us extremely uncompassionate. I don't know if that's a word, but that same thing that happens with Job's friends. They're like, they're looking at Job and they say, well, it's your fault that you're suffering. And so figure it out. They have no compassion, no empathy, no sympathy for him. They just blame and judge him. But there's an issue with this because we know from the prologue that Job hasn't done anything wrong right? Even God said, you are experiencing undeserved suffering. So Job has not sinned. He has not earned the punishment that he is experiencing, if you will. And so he comes to a different conclusion because he knows this about himself. And he says, I know I'm innocent. And I still believe that God has ordered the world in a retributive way, meaning good is rewarded and bad is punished, which then leads me to believe God cannot be just And he cannot be wise. And if you dig a little deeper into the context, Job even goes so far as to say, God, you don't know how to run the world. That's ultimately what he accuses God of. I mean, talk about audacious. I kind of like Job because he's real, right? He doesn't hold back. He's like, God, I don't know what's going on here. This isn't working. You're messing up somehow. And if we're honest, we probably all have said something like that to God at some point. And if we haven't said it, we've at least wondered it. And so in Job 9, we hear him. He says, so who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with him? Even if I were right, I would have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned him and he responded, I'm not sure he would listen to me. For he attacks me with a storm and repeatedly wounds me without cause. He will not let me catch my breath, but fills me instead with bitter sorrow. And this leads to a second assumption that people make about suffering. And that is that God is the cause of both good and evil in our lives. Because in Job's mind, God is the one who's doing all of this to him. And a lot of people believe that. They look at natural disasters, they look at things like cancer, and they, they don't know how to rationalize it any other way than to say, God is doing this to me. And it makes God seem really unsafe. And so they build walls against him because they don't, they don't trust him. And if we're honest, why would you, if you had a friend that kind of was like nice to you sometimes and mean to you for no reason at other times, you wouldn't be friends with them for long. And this happens to large parts of humanity who just cannot understand why suffering exists. And the only reason they can come up with it is to say God does both. God does good and God does bad. And so we're not only witnessing Job's crisis of faith as we read his book, but if we're being honest, we can see other people's crisis of faith in this book, maybe even our own at times, where we have wondered, God, I I don't want to give up on you like Job doesn't give up on you, but I'm not sure I can trust you. So I'll keep showing up, but I'm not going to be vulnerable. There are lots of people in the church who live like that. Our pain is so tremendous We don't know where it came from, and we think God did it, that we just shut down to him. But we don't stop showing up. We just kind of stay in this uncomfortable and awkward place. Elihu is the last to speak out of all these groups. We've seen all of them go. And he's the youngest in the group, and he waits to put forth what is ultimately a more nuanced opinion of God. And it's really about God's justice. Whereas the older three friends think that God's justice is very black and white, Elihu says, well, I think maybe there's more to it than just he always gives good to good and always gives bad to bad. He believes that God's justice or that suffering, excuse me, is used by God like a tool to warn people or to teach them a lesson um, or to build character. And this is the assumption about suffering that I hear the most today. I have literally heard it this month where people say, I am going through this really difficult thing because God is trying to teach me something. Has anybody else heard that or even said that? We can own it, right? Yeah, we did. Bless Elihu. The man goes on and on and on. You can tell he's young. I can like, I feel like I can relate to Elihu. Um, in Job 36, 8 to 12, he says, um, people, if they're bound in chains, if people are, are suffering and caught up in a web of trouble, God shows them the reason. He shows them the sin of their pride. He gets their attention uses suffering to get their attention and commands that they turn from evil. If they listen and obey, they will be blessed with prosperity throughout their lives and all their years will be pleasant. But if they refuse to listen to him, they will cross over the river of death, dying from lack of understanding. So Elihu has a little bit more of an opinion on justice and he says, God uses suffering like a tool for our benefit. He uses evil to bring out good in us which is still confusing when we think about what Jesus is like. And yet, this is, in my opinion, the most common assumption people make when they're trying to rationalize why suffering exists. It must be so that God can teach me something for my good. And it's easy to see at this point why the book of Job is timeless. Because even as you're reading this unidentified time when this was all written, we don't know if it came from Moses or if it came from the monarchs or There's no idea, there's no defining character about when this was written. It could be the oldest book in the Bible, honestly. This, This understanding, this wrestling, this trying to figure out God's character and his goodness and how he ordered the world and how suffering fits into all that is something that all humans try and know because it's suffering is so uncomfortable. It, just, it takes control out of our lives, which is something we so desperately want. And so the book of Job is timeless, because the reasoning that we come to to explain suffering or to give it some type of foundation still exists today. All three of these assumptions are still things I see on Facebook or I hear in conversations with people, which is why why we have to pay such careful attention not just to the beginning in the prologue, but to when God speaks? So chapters thirty-eight to forty-two, that is where the meat and the and the bones and all the good stuff is in this book. It, it helps us to have a grid, not only to know what the question is that's being asked, but then the answer that God gives. And so the first thing that Job does when, or excuse me, that God does when He speaks to Job is He takes him on a tour of all of creation, the galaxies all the way down to Earth and he asks him all sorts of impossible questions. I love this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever in your days commanded the morning light? Where does light live or where does darkness reside? Can you lead out a constellation in its season? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? 100% toddlers ask questions like God. Why is this? I have no idea, child. Um, Impossible questions. Absolutely. But through this grand tour, God is reminding Job that he, God, has a perspective that is broader and more infinite than humanity could ever grasp. And this is important because he says, Job, you can only see the natural world that you live in. And even in that natural world where you reside and dwell, you don't know everything about what's around you. And that's, that's true for us in this room. I can guarantee to you that Oscar knows way more about science than I ever will. Joe knows way more about houses. Misty can fry chicken a hundred times better than I can. I don't even try. Like there's things in this room that each of us knows better than the person around us. And we all exist in the same plane, right? And so God's saying... You have such limited understanding of the place where you dwell. How could you even begin to imagine all the complexity of the rest of creation? And if you can't understand that, how can you possibly think you can define justice and wisdom? You can't, Job. Think of it this way. In our house, I have a rule. We, Tim and I have a rule where we don't throw toys. Bad things happen when toys get thrown, unless it's a baseball outside. If our children throw toys, which they know is not okay, they lose it for the day. It goes up on the shelf, and that's where it resides. However, if one day I was sitting with my kids, and I, out of the corner of my eye, saw smoke coming from the kitchen, and I got up and grabbed a dining room chair, and I threw it and broke a window, my children would immediately know that mommy broke a rule, and that mommy should be in timeout, and that chair has to go up on the shelf. However... What dictated me breaking my rule was seeing danger and knowing that the only way I could get my kids out was going to be through that window. And so in that moment, the moral and ethical choice or decision, the better choice, would be to break my own rule to protect my children. There are times, at least in my kids' perspective, that would make me look like a hypocrite if they didn't see the fire. Right? They couldn't see it. They didn't have a broad enough perspective. So it just looks like mom broke a rule for no reason. The reality is God sees so much more than we see and always will, which means there are times when we just cannot understand why suffering happens. We just don't know because our perspective is not broad enough to understand, God, why is this happening? He says, you just, you're never going to be able to get it. You only see this teeny tiny bit. I see everything all the time. I am managing everything all the time. And so when you look at something and think that's morally suspicious or that's just wrong, God, he says, it may look that way to you, but my perspective is entirely different. And, and you only have a limited perspective, so you, you're never going to be able to fully judge what is good and what is bad. In fact, that is the original reason that Adam and Eve took the fruit. They wanted the right to judge that. We want the right to be able to say this is good and this is evil we want to be able to do that and part of following god is giving that back to him humanity was never able to manage that there's a lot god gave us that's good he did not give us that right the second thing he does is he introduces job to two wild and dangerous parts of his creation the behemoth and the leviathan in most of scripture behemoth is used for domesticated animals cows chicken not chickens cows goats and uh horses The description here reminds me of a hippo. I mean, it's like an ugly hippo. It sounds like a dino-hippo kind of mashup. It's got like a really big tail, but suffice it to say, I read Behemoth and I think of a hippo. The next thing that he describes is the Leviathan. And this is a really common image used in all ancient Near East texts. It's not just something that the Israelites talked about. You'll find it in Egyptian literature, et cetera, et cetera. And both of them were used as symbols of violence and chaos. So, if you came across this, it was especially in seafaring people, the Leviathan was this idea of like the chaos of the sea that they could not control because the sea is chaotic. Like a kraken, yeah. Or the Loch Ness Monster. Every generation, every tradition has some version of this. And the interesting thing about both of these creatures is that both of them could kill a person in an instant, right? They're both powerful, they're dangerous, they're deadly. And God does not describe them as evil or bad at all. Ooh, I got a strobe light effect going on. Instead, God actually says, I am proud of the power of both of these creatures, and I love them. So these creatures that could destroy you and me in a minute if we came across them out in the wild are actually creatures that God's like, I really love this incredible thing that I have made. And what God is doing in this second point with Job is he's reminding them that chaos still exists in the created order. And for that reason, the world is not designed to prevent us from suffering. There are just natural things that happen. If I go around and whack a wasp's nest and get stung a dozen times, God didn't send that against me. I just made a really poor decision, right? And that's not God being bad. He's not punishing me. It's just the reality of living in a world where Chaos still exists. If we go back to the garden, the idea it's okay, Joe, I don't I don't need that. That's super bright. Um, it's fine. Uh if we go back to the garden, what we find is that God says, I've put perfect order in the garden. Now go forward and bring that order to the rest of creation. And the idea is that humanity was supposed to be order bringers. But because we chose to disobey God, we just thrust ourselves into the chaos instead. And now we live amongst it. And the only way we can bring order back is by following Jesus and bringing his kingdom wherever we go. But the idea is that what he's basically saying to to Job is that my world's not designed to prevent you from experiencing pain and suffering. It's going to exist concurrent with you living. And so we get to this point where, at the end of it, ultimately God responds to Job's accusations by saying, I'm always good, but my sovereignty the way that I order the world, how all of this works is too complex for you to ever fully understand. And that's it. That's the answer God gives on why suffering exists. That's the answer he gives about his justice and wisdom. That's, that's the period. And we would like for it to be far more elaborate. I would like for it, yeah, right, dot, 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 Terry. I would like for it to be very black and white because if I knew why suffering existed, I could do everything in my power to avoid it. But that's not what God says. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts in Isaiah 55, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, God is very clear. He says, suffering is going to be a part of your, of your world. It is a part of your world. And you don't know why. Could be the devil. Could be your own bad choices. Could be somebody else's bad choices. Could be none of those things and all of those things at the same time. And the point then is not for us to try and figure out why suffering happens. The invitation in Job is for us to put ourselves into the hands of God and trust him that he is good and he knows better than we do and to live into, and to lean into and live into the goodness of God instead. And that's ultimately what Job does. In, 40, in Job 42, he says, I've only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. It's basically Job's way of saying, Yeah, I stepped into something above my pay grade. And the hard part about that is, yeah, we don't have a really great answering for suffering. But the beauty of that is that we also know it's not God doing it. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus comes against the consequences of suffering, right? He comes against illness. He comes against death. He comes against demonic oppression, blindness, all of those things. And what does he do? Does he judge the people and say they've sinned? No. Does he condemn them? Does he say, sorry, too bad. You're out. God doesn't love you anymore. No. Every time he runs into the consequences of suffering in the world, he brings healing. He brings freedom. He brings justice. That is who God is. That is the character of God. It says Jesus fully reveals the heart of God. He is just, and he is wise, and his justice and wisdom are beyond our comprehension. But what we do know through Christ Jesus is that God is in pursuit of our healing and our wholeness, even in a broken and chaotic world, and we can hang our hats on that. And in fact, that's exactly where we're supposed to. Because if we do anything, if we try to understand or reason or rationalize suffering outside of understanding Jesus and how he reveals God, then we will come to the same conclusions as Job and his friends, and our faith will crack. Jesus is the cornerstone for a reason if we build our faith on anything else, if we try to understand the world through anyone else, if we try to understand God without looking at Jesus, we will never come to real good conclusions. He is the image of the Father. He shows us his heart, he shows us his character, and he shows us how to live in a complex and dangerous and often confusing world. He brings all of the clarity we will ever need And that's what makes him amazing. Jesus is exactly who we need to understand everything. And what we cannot understand, we can look to him and trust that he loves us and he is good. So, yay, the book of Job. It's fun. Way to go on a warp tour with me because that was fast. But that is the reality. We cannot look at it to understand suffering. We look at the book of Job to understand God's goodness to understand that God is greater than we are, and we can lean on that. We can live into that. So we're going to move into ministry time now.